This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan, and Tegan Taylor, who will join us later. Today, if you give your DNA for medical research, would you want the researchers to tell you they've found something unexpected which could change your life? I would, but it doesn't necessarily happen. Is that ethical? More later. The extent to which the stress and disruption and lack of access to support during the coronavirus pandemic has affected breastfeeding. 15% of mothers reckon their baby has a cow's milk allergy that might be transmitted, for example, in breast milk, when the true rate is around 1%. There's wrong attribution of symptoms like regurgitation, but you can't blame parents. The guidelines are seriously conflicted in favour of infant formula manufacturers. And magic mushrooms, or at least their active psychedelic component, psilocybin, and major depression. There's been some evidence for a while that psychedelics can help relieve depression and anxiety. Now a small study of people with major depression, which hasn't been fully treated with existing medications and psychotherapy, has found significant benefits from reasonably high doses of psilocybin given in a controlled environment with a therapist present. The study was done at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, which has a long history of psychedelic research, led by Roland Griffiths, who's Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience. I spoke to him earlier. Happy to be here. I mean, we should just set context here before we get into the study. Johns Hopkins has probably been studying psychedelics longer than, in a continuous way, than any other institution in the United States, if not the world. Well, certainly in the United States, we initiated our work with psychedelics 20 years ago at a time where it was unprecedented to get approval to administer a psychedelic to a psychedelically naive individual, at least you know, over the last several decades after the trauma of the uh, psychedelic uh, 60s. So we've done quite a bit of work with psychedelics over that period of time, doing studies in healthy volunteers and in patient populations. We've administered psilocybin to almost 400 participants in almost 700 sessions over that period of time. And again, before we get to this study, just broadly, what have you found? I mean, what, what are the highlights of the research so far? Well, the basic and most remarkable finding, and it really set me off on this adventure, I would have to say I'm trained as a clinical psychopharmacologist, had done a lot of work with mood-altering drugs. And then 25 years ago or so, I undertook a meditation practice, and that got me very curious about altered states of consciousness. And so we initiated our first study with a pretty high dose of psilocybin. You know, I'd read that literature, but I was kind of skeptical about what might happen. And it really is uh, fantastically interesting. Basically, if you give a high dose of psilocybin to people who have been carefully screened and prepared and they're supported during their sessions and after their sessions, they end up having experiences that map on or look quite similar to naturally occurring mystical or transcendent kindness of experiences and to which people report enduring long-term changes positive changes in attitudes, moods, and behavior. And when asked to reflect back or rate the quality of that experience, most people studied 
will rate the experience as among the most personally meaningful and spiritually significant experience of their entire lifetime, comparing it, for instance, to birth of a firstborn child or death of a parent. So there's something astonishingly interesting about these kinds of experiences. And it's not just psychedelics. We know that humans from the beginning of documented time have had experiences that are transitional of this sort. It's just now that we have a model system for, for studying these. So we've done a lot of work looking at dose effects and replicability of the effects and trying to understand the extent to which expectancies feed into these effects, which they do some, but they certainly don't determine the entire effect. So, and then we've ventured not into clinical populations. And which, that's, which is where this trial comes up. And it was a trial of people with major depressive disorder, and that really qualifies people with a deep, dark depression and treatments, traditional treatments such as SSRIs, normal antidepressants, haven't worked that well or they've only worked partially. We've covered this issue before. It is a, a difficult problem and quite a high percentage of people with major depression don't get full recovery, if you like, from the drugs themselves. Mm. And it's a small trial. So you did it in people, uh, so about 24 people, I understand. And it wasn't with a placebo, but essentially you, you had a control population who eventually got the drug. Is that right? Did I get that design yep. right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Let me just say before going into the most recent trial, we also had run a trial and published it back in 2016, and that was a placebo-controlled double-blind trial. And these were people who were anxious or depressed, secondary to having a life-threatening cancer diagnosis. And that study showed a single session, a single exposure to psilocybin produced long-term decreases in anxiety and depression. So this is a follow-on study. It's in people with major depression. And as you mentioned, they're, you know, very often incompletely treated and, you know, 10 to 30% of people with major depression are considered to be completely treatment resistant. And plus, the conventional SSRIs have a host of pretty aversive side effects that dampers people's enthusiasm for them. So what did you find? Yeah. So this is major, major depression. And what we did is give psilocybin on two sessions. This is done at about a two-week interval between the sessions. And what we found is really huge, rapid and substantial decreases in depressive symptomatology. So we used a gold standard measure for assessing depression. That's a clinician-rated measure of depression, and the clinicians are blinded to the, the people and the drug condition. And what we showed is even after the first session, the rates of depressive symptoms dropped dramatically and they stayed low. Now, this study, we just followed people out to four weeks, but we'll be following this study up with a longer-term follow-up. Because the, there is evidence that it doesn't last forever when you do it with um, you know, other studies have suggested that it's a, maybe a year later it comes back. 
Well, there's one open label study in treatment resistant depression that shows some reemergence. And we've seen we've seen some of that, but we're really anticipating past our four-week follow-up. We are seeing substantial effects. But let me just underscore the magnitude of these effects. So about 70% of people had decreases in depression score of over 50%. It was over 50% were in complete remission at four weeks. So that is, they're no longer distinguishable from the normal population. And those effect sizes are huge. So compared to a trial that would examine, say, an SSRI, these effect sizes are three to four times greater. So let me just explore a few things here. One is there is some evidence that if you don't actually have a transcendental experience, in other words, you don't induce a sense of out of body merging of your ego with the environment, which is what these drugs tend to do in reasonable doses. If you don't have that experience, you tend not to get the antidepressive effects. So something cathartic has got to happen in the brain. Did you find that in this study? Yes, there's uh, some evidence. It, it's not a either or kind of thing. There is good data, and we've I've seen it in other studies, the degree of the so-called transcendent experience predicts the degree of therapeutic or positive outcome. And we saw that. It, it comes out as a correlation between the mystical experience and subsequent effects. People can have full therapeutic responses in absence of such an effect. So some people will report experiences of great personal insight, even of a psychodynamic or a historical nature. And they won't say that they've had a mystical experience per se, but they appear to be enduringly changed in a positive way. Second question I've got is that you couldn't design a treatment that's more susceptible to the placebo effect. So they come in, they've read about this, they've been screened for, um, you know, whether they've got schizophrenia or a tendency to psychosis. They come into a nice area, they've got a therapist, they're there for eight hours in a nice environment, they're listening to music, there's a whole shtick around taking the psychedelic, which is partly for safety, partly to help induce this transcendental or mystical experience. So the expectation of benefit is huge, and that's just when you get a placebo effect. I mean, that's surely a criticism of the study. Well, let's see. <laughs> the, um, those expectancy effects are wrapped around the therapeutic effects. There's no question, and, and we understand this, fundamentally about psychedelics. Their effects depend on set and setting. And so expectation plays a role, no question about that. We've done any number of studies to try to tease apart the degree of that. And, and in this case, this study did not attempt to control for that expectancy effects because the control group was an untreated group. As best you can ethically control for that, it's still very clear that these drugs have these very powerful effects. I suspect that there's actually no absolutely good control for that, short of an experiment in which you completely anesthetize someone uh, so that they couldn't detect the effects of the psychedelic. <laughs> but that seems like a rather absurd 
study to to run. So it's a small it's a small study, twenty four people without a placebo arm. It's a control group. Correct. Uh, how many people would have to be studied for you to be sure? You know, and obviously to do a placebo control study, you'd have to recreate everything except the drug. How many people would you have to study to be sure this is ready for showtime? Our previous study in cancer patients was placebo controlled, and we've run other studies with active comparative compounds. So we know this effect is is real. But you raised a good point. Okay, so for MDD, what would it take to get this approved? Well, in fact, there are two companies now in the United States that are have gotten something called breakthrough therapy status from our Food and Drug Administration, which is the group that oversees these clinical trials for drug approval. And they are conducting trials right now that if positive would result in or could result in approval of psilocybin. Those studies generally have 100 to 200 participants and they are placebo control. That's that's the requirement that FDA is making for these studies. Whether or not that's the best control or not is a little bit unclear to me because of the very psychoactive nature of the psychedelic. But anyway, those studies are ongoing. I would predict that if they're positive and if some significant untoward effects of psilocybin are not revealed, which, you know, could be the case, and psilocybin is certainly not without risks, well, I would guess that approval might be forthcoming in four to six years. So there's other drugs around. There's people going to ayahuasca retreats in Australia. There's LSD around. Is this specific to magic mushrooms, to psilocybin, or can you generalize that anything that induces a profound mystical experience could have an antidepressant effect? Well, we simply don't have the data to address that, but it's true that ayahuasca, who's in the principal psychoactive component, there's DMT and LSD, which is a, a synthesized compound. They act through similar neurophysiological receptor mechanisms as psilocybin. It's not clear all of the pluses and minuses of whether or not all those drugs will have efficacy in a condition such as a major depression. So I think we'll have to see, but it would appear that these compounds are more similar than different, although they have some very significant differences. And so it's, it's quite possible that there would be therapeutic value in depression with both ayahuasca and LSD. Roland Griffiths, thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. Fascinating research. Happy to join you. Roland Griffiths is Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And you're listening to RN's Health Report. Our email address for questions and comments is healthreport at abc.net.au. I'm Norman Swan, as usual, with Tegan Taylor. Hi, Tegan. Hi, Norman. Now, you've got a story this week on breastfeeding in the times of COVID. I do. So, I mean, having a new baby is exciting, but it's often one that's really fraught with anxiety. And so it shouldn't really come as any massive surprise that that's really amplified during a pandemic. And the Australian Breastfeeding Association has put out some new research on this because their breastfeeding hotline, they've got like a 24-7 hotline staffed by volunteers, um, has had a real jump in the number of calls that they've had this year and a slightly different mix of calls than they'd have in a typical year. So what did they actually find? 
Right. So they had about a thousand extra calls a month than their normal monthly average, which is um, around about 5,000. So a pretty big, significant jump. And they found that people were calling up with some of the same queries that they'd usually have. They're worried about their milk supply or their baby not gaining enough weight or they've got painful breasts. But there were other things that were that people ask about sometimes, but there was a lot more questions about it this year, like people wanting to restart breastfeeding again, either because they'd weaned or they, they'd been formula feeding beforehand. Oh, really? And yeah, yeah. So I think people were thinking that they wanted to protect their baby with the immunity uh, that can come with breast milk, the immune-boosting power of breast milk. Uh, and also they were worried about supply of formula because, if you recall, early in the pandemic, there was a real problem with panic buying. Yeah. And so I think people were really concerned about supply of formula for their kids as well. Yeah, of course, that tugs your heart there when people want to restart <laughs> breastfeeding after the milk's dried up, probably. Absolutely. And so then obviously the the people who are on the other end of the phone are phone counsellors and they're volunteers and they were sort of talking about that as well. And the other thing that people were talking about was just feeling stressed and isolated and that they weren't able to access face-to-face health services either because they were worried about going to their GP or they just couldn't go because, uh, and this is one of the tugs at my heartstrings, um, a woman who had symptoms of mastitis, so a breast infection, but because she had a fever, she couldn't go to her GP because that was a COVID system mm. and there was an overlap there. And and the number of people allowed in the, in the doctor's rooms as well. So a mum with a couple of kids can't go in because he can only have two people at a time. So they weren't able to see lactation consultants face to face? This So these, this study was done quite early in the pandemic, so March to May, and that was a real time of uncertainty and upheaval. I think, I suspect things have gotten better since then. But um, I mean, this this helpline service is there and perhaps there were lactation consultants available as well. But uh, as a as sort of a pre-existing telehealth um, service, it was probably a bit more accessible than, than what came online later. And you spoke to um, Naomi Hull from the Breastfeeding Association. That's right. So she's the senior manager of breastfeeding information and research, but she's also a telephone counsellor herself. And she said that the pandemic has made what's already a really hard time for mums even harder. The normal concerns of having a new baby just seem to be amplified, particularly for mothers that were isolated from family and friends. That lack of other adults to talk to, those visits and all the usual exciting things that happen for new mothers just weren't able to happen for those mothers. That's Naomi Hull from the Australian Breastfeeding Association. Was there any sense that, I mean, it doesn't sound as if there was actually, but breastfeeding rates dropped during this time? Oh, according to this study, it feels like it's quite the opposite. But the study's based on calls to the Australian Breastfeeding Association. So the implication there is that people are calling because they're motivated to breastfeed. But it also maybe indicates that people were trying to breastfeed, but they um, they couldn't also access the sorts of face-to-face services that they'd usually have. But there was a, a different study in Maternal and Child Nutrition Journal last month of the UK, and they interviewed even more people. It was a similar sort of study. And some of those mums, nearly, it was about 40%, said that they felt that their breastfeeding was protected due to lockdown, that it was better. But there was a pretty big chunk of women who felt that they had less support to breastfeed. And a lot of, there's about a third of the women in the study felt like they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to because they just didn't have the support available. So I think it really depends a lot on 
who the mum is. Um, in that British study, mums of black and minority ethnic backgrounds were much more likely to be impacted by the pandemic and stop breastfeeding before they were ready. So it sounds that mothers and babies internationally have been neglected, if you like, in pandemic planning. Well, yeah. So another um, expert that I spoke to for this, Carleen Gribble from Western Sydney University, she's studied this and she said she wrote advice to a pandemic, uh, an emergency plan document in 2007, indicating that there isn't enough emphasis on infant feeding in these sorts of plans. And that one of the big holes is that mothers and babies need to be seen as a dyad, as a single unit, and that protecting that relationship and their ability to stay together is really key to having the uh, the ability to feed them as, as their mothers want to, even in times of upheaval. Tegan, thank you. Thanks for having me. And Tegan will be back in the Health Report podcast to answer your questions at healthreport at abc.net.au. Let's stay with infant feeding because around 15% of parents think their baby has a cow's milk allergy when the real rate is around 1%. The result can be changing formula to a specialised formula, which the sales of which have boomed in recent years, mothers restricting their diet or even stopping breastfeeding altogether. And it's not the fault of parents. According to a review of the evidence, it turns out that expert guidelines on cow's milk allergy around the world have got it wrong and make overly stringent recommendations to restrict cow's milk in response to very common symptoms in babies. Most of these guidelines seem to have been seriously conflicted with links to infant formula manufacturers and probably misled GPs and paediatricians across the world. One of the authors is Dr Deborah Palmer, who's Head of Childhood Allergy and Immunology Research at the Telephone Kids Institute at the University of WA. Welcome to The Health Report, Deborah. Thank you for having me. What have the guidelines recommended that you've questioned when you've looked at the evidence? So we've looked at uh, sort of nine guidelines from around the world, and commonly they report very common infant symptoms, so like infant colic, uh, reflux or regurgitation, rashes, um, eczema, which a lot of babies have. More than one in five babies would commonly have those symptoms. And unfortunately, those symptoms also can be linked to cow's milk allergy. But the common nature of these symptoms is far more common than those children who actually have cow's milk allergy, which is roughly only one in a hundred versus one in five may have these symptoms. And it's very difficult to diagnose cow's milk allergy in very young infants, especially um, when they're breastfed. Um, and there's sort of, um, unfortunately, there's been a over uh, use of recommendations of um, potentially diagnosing children with cow's milk allergy when they may just have other symptoms. And that's led to what? Unfortunately, it's led to um, a lot of mums um, stopping breastfeeding. Um, often their first recommendation is to actually try and see if you can remove cow's milk from the mum's diet to see if that actually helps the baby. But sometimes that's actually extremely difficult for some women and they really find the pressure of trying to do that. Also, if, if you like dairy foods, it's quite inconvenient and it's very really difficult to change your diet while you're still trying to feed a baby. And so they, they often feel that, well, I'll just stop breastfeeding and, and switch on to a specialised formula. And then they miss out so many benefits of the breast milk and breastfeeding. And as I indicated in the lead, the, the sales of these specialised formulas formulae have boomed. 
yeah, they've really skyrocketed in the last couple of decades. Um, they've become more available, um, more readily available for families and sometimes at a lower cost as well. And so their accessibility has led to a, a, a fair high use, um, as is the recognition that um, these these guidelines are there, but the, unfortunately they, they may be overused and leading to this overdiagnosis of cow's milk allergy. And, um, and then, yeah, we have the consequences of a lot of babies um, having breast, breastfeeding ceased prematurely. And you found that when you look at the evidence, first of all, randomised trials don't support some of these actions and it's unlikely that even a woman who's taking cow's milk in their diet is transmitting enough of the cow's milk antigen in their milk to make a difference. That's correct, because the amounts that pass through the breast milk, we, we do know that cow's milk protein and other food allergens pass through the breast milk, but they're in tiny immune amounts that is not really the levels that normally cause allergy reactions in infants. So they're very tiny amounts. Um, we also know there's a dose response. So if mums cut down, if they're having a lot, say, of dairy foods and cow's milk um, allergens, they cut down you know, to, to a lower level, they will actually reduce the amount of those proteins passing through but overall the amount is absolutely tiny compared to if a baby was to eat dairy food or have a, a standard bottle of infant formula that contains cow's milk protein. So you find that 81% of the guidelines or the people involved in the guidelines had a conflict, were conflicted because of support from the infant formula industry? Yeah, this is a, it's a it's a tricky situation. Um, often, what happens is expert panels are formed, um, and to be able to bring those group of experts together, um, there's often funding, both travel and also um, meeting funding from the companies. Um, so it is a tricky situation because sometimes these panels cannot get together without some form of support and funding, but it it does lead to this this conflict situation certainly doesn't uh, recommend the infant formula industry you know as caring for babies if they're supporting guidelines which are misleading yeah it's it's a, it's a, it's a trick it's a very tricky situation i'm afraid are there um, any reliable guidelines in this area sorry to interrupt deborah but are there any that's, that's um, they're, they're, they're all pretty similar and they all unfortunately come to the same, basically the same summary where a lot of these very common infant symptoms are listed as potential, as potential causes of cow's milk allergy, which they can be, but the frequency of these causing cow's milk allergy is, is, is absolutely minimal, one in a hundred, I'm afraid. So what you've got, you've got a baby who's regurgitating, you win them and they're, you know, they bring up milk over your shoulder, they're drawing up their legs, some people call that colic, it's big questionable what, what's going mm -hmm. on there. And so you've got a baby that's crying a bit or maybe a lot and they're regurgitating and they just seem uncomfortable, what's a parent to do? What are they attri to attribute those symptoms to? And how would you know if it's cow's milk allergy? Yes, I think I think one of the first things, and this might lead on from you know, your previous discussions this afternoon, is that um, potentially if the baby's breastfed, and this is really what we're talking about, breastfed um, infants who might have these symptoms, is um, seeing if the mum um, can have a bit of support or help, looking at breastfeeding patterns, looking at sucking technique of the baby, positioning of the baby when feeding, because sometimes that can, can actually make it just a little tweaking of the way the baby's feeding or the pattern of feeding. That can actually help some of these symptoms. 
symptoms in some babies. Um, it was also just important to recognise, unless the baby is really distressed, some of these symptoms are quite natural and normal. Um, and just really, it's, it's sort of a it's a balance to how distressed or not the baby may be with these symptoms and other symptoms like eczema or rashes. Um, it really can be more of refining skin care and moisturising the baby um, rather than changing the mum's diet or, or ceasing breastfeeding. Is there a definitive test for Cosmo allergy? There is um, a way of, of the definitive test is doing a challenge where you actually give the baby cow's milk protein. Um, but for most young breastfed babies, you, you, you wouldn't do that if they hadn't commenced on some form of cow's milk allergy um, allergen already. So um, the only way if they're fully breastfed is to remove the cow's milk or reduce the cow's milk in the mum's diet and then to see if that actually improves their symptoms considerably. But it really needs to make a considerable improvement um, not just a small improvement, otherwise it's probably not the answer. So don't believe the guidelines. GPs have got to be sceptical and support mothers before you start intervening with their diet. Definitely, definitely. Deborah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Dr Deborah Palmer is Head of Childhood Allergy and Immunology Research at the Telephone Kids Institute at the University of WA. It's a fantastic thing when people agree to be part of scientific studies or medical trials. They're directly contributing to the sum of medical knowledge, increasing research. Increasingly, though, medical research involves analysing the genes of participants to see whether there might be a genetic reason for responding or indeed not responding to a medication or even an intervention, say, like exercise. But the genetic analysis can produce unexpected findings on the side, which have nothing to do with the study. For instance, a woman may accidentally be found to have a breast cancer gene. There's an active debate amongst researchers about whether they're obliged to let participants know they have a genetic mutation, which they could do something about. Medically actionable is the term. That might seem inexplicable to an outside observer, which is why Jane Tiller, who's an, well, inexplicable, there's a debate about it, which is why Jane Tiller, who's an ethical, legal and social advisor in public health genomics at Monash University, has been looking at it. Jane was an investigator on one of these studies, which looked at the effects of aspirin and preventing heart disease and cancer in otherwise healthy people. Welcome to the Health Report, Jane. Thanks for having me. So what are the issue, yeah. issues here? So we've been thinking about this for a while and, in fact, like you say, it's been something that's been in quite a bit of debate for quite a while. And the question is, uh, should people be given the opportunity to learn about these genetic results where much of the time there are preventative actions that can be taken? These are results which are um, talking about a predisposition to disease such as cancer or heart conditions. And if we know we can do something to prevent that disease, we want to tell them about the fact that they have it and that they can do something. However, not everyone wants to know this information. Um, there are some resource implications, of course, for contacting research participants and giving them back this information. And so the question for research studies when they find this kind of genetic information is what do we do? Do we offer this back? Do we contact the participants or do we just publish the research and move on? I've heard of uh, studies where they, they deliberately don't want to know about these genes. They only want to know about the genes that they're looking at and they deliberately don't get the results. So they don't have this ethical dilemma, which seems bizarre. Absolutely. So sometimes they call it black boxing. So they will look at genes and they'll purposely black out anything that might be um, medically actionable or might be predictive so that they don't see it. And when they don't see it, there is no ethical um, issue that they have to go through about whether or not to give it back. That's Which corrupts common. their study because they could find something in some of these genes that they didn't expect. That's relevant well, to their study. 
that is always a question for the design of the study and it depends what they're looking at. Sometimes they're looking at childhood onset diseases or um, different types of conditions and so they uh, black out anything that's adult onset or or predictive. But absolutely, especially in studies like uh, Asprey, as you mentioned, I'm an investigator in that study and we've been doing genetic analysis on biobank samples and we found people in that study who have these gene changes that cause an increased risk of cancers or other conditions. And we've been having this question around what do we do with that and do we offer these elderly participants the opportunity to learn about these gene changes? It might have some implications for their own health, but absolutely it will have implications so what did for you their do? health. So we are actually, when we wrote the paper, we partnered with uh, the Life Pool study, which is a, a study of women um, and it, it's been returning results to women who have uh, breast cancer predisposing genes um, and they've had a really good uptake and 97% of their participants have contacted them and said, yes, we want these results. And that's regardless of age, old people still want the results. Um, and we've been working through with the ethics committees and the scientific committees about how we can offer these results back. And when we wrote this paper, we were really talking about some of the challenges in deciding how to do it, deciding whether people would want this information and the research overwhelmingly suggests that people will want this information um, and we're now just at the stage where we're taking the next step and, and starting to work on the protocol for returning the first um, small batch of results, which is really good news. Because if you're going to find out you've got the breast cancer gene, for example, you need genetic counselling. You can't just give That's it right. cold. Absolutely. So this is, you know, this is life-changing information and there are lots of aspects to that about um, people's experience and what they do with the information, sharing it with family members. And absolutely, it's really important that genetic counsellors are involved in providing that information and in providing people with support in making the decision whether to have testing, whether to receive the information. And so um, certainly in LifePool, there were genetic counsellors involved. In our study, we'll absolutely have genetic counsellors involved I'm a genetic counsellor and so I'll be involved in that as well. But it's important that people can make that choice for themselves. They understand what kind of information they might be receiving and choose whether they want to have it or not. But not giving them the opportunity really um, means they miss out on that potential. And of really course, in Australia, potential. we don't have the benefits of a Genetic Information Protection Act to stop life insurance companies from discriminating against you. We don't. And that's something that we've also been working on over the last two years. Um, there's now a moratorium in, in place, which the life insurance industry has put in place, which gives some consumer protection up to certain limits. But if people are looking for life insurance over those limits, then life insurance companies legal are still allowed to use that information. They're allowed to discriminate against people. And we see the research shows us time and time again, people find out about that and they are afraid of having testing, they're afraid of being involved in research, um, and it really does kind of get in the way. Um, and it's still something that, we, you know, there's a potential solution there and there's a partway solution, but we haven't resolved it yet in Australia. Jean Tiller is Ethical, Legal and Social Advisor in Public Health Genomics at Monash University. Interesting stuff, Tegan. Yeah, really thorny ethical questions there. Yeah, but would you want to know? I think I would. I think I would, but it has made me think about whether it's information that you could do anything with, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be actionable, as they say, mm. and make a difference to your life. There's not that many genes to do. I think there's about 60 genes that really could make a difference, um, but, but there will be more as time goes on. 
Anyway, let's start taking people's questions and comments. Uh, to remind you, the address to send in your questions and comments is healthreport at abc.net.au. What do we have, Tegan? I've got some great ones for you today. Well, let's start off with, but really it's a comment from Richard, who was very invested in the story that we covered last week about prostate cancer. Richard had a prostatectomy in a public hospital a decade ago and as a private hospital patient but without the benefit of robotics. And uh, Richard says radiation therapy was an option, but unlike what we said on the health report last week, it was only suitable for those who didn't have a restricted flow rate since it was advised that the treatment caused swelling and further restriction, which could lead to complications. And anyway, he wasn't a suitable candidate for radiation, so he had a prostatectomy. And sadly, Richard says this has meant much less effective erections and incontinence, which he says limits his quality of life, but living still beats incontinence hands down. So Richard ends by saying a watch and wait approach wouldn't have been appropriate for him. Every individual needs individualised treatment. Yeah. And I don't know the details about what are the indications and contraindications for radiation therapy, but hopefully Richard got a second opinion from a radiation oncologist to make sure that and wasn't just getting it from the urologist because it's the urologist that does the fluorate testing. You really do want a second opinion from a radiation oncologist if you've got prostate cancer just to make sure because sometimes the urologist is a bit out of date with the current situation with radiation therapy. And that was basically the thrust of the story last week was that you need that multidisciplinary approach to get the best care for people. Yep, absolutely. And Evan's written in about a comment that we had last week about someone who'd had teeth whitening in a beauty parlour, who'd had blistering of his tongue and cheeks after it. Uh, Norman, you interpreted this as chemical burns, but Evan's wondering whether maybe it was ultraviolet light because he recently had a dental filling and the dentist used an ultraviolet light to harden the filling material and held the light directly against his tooth for maybe 30 to 60 seconds. And Evan joked that maybe he should have gargled with sunscreen before his appointment. (laughs) Evan's saying maybe this is a case of unregulated UV suntan beds inside your mouth. Yeah, well, I'm not a dentist and what I know about dentistry could be written on the back of a molar. It's true that sometimes teeth, so what they do is they put this gel on your teeth and then they light it up with blue light. And there's two ways of giving the blue light. One is ultraviolet and that could actually cause tissue damage in the mouth. And the other is using a light emitting diode with blue light, which is not going to harm tissues. And I think a lot of the responsible people in the tooth whitening area where you're doing the sort of heavy duty teeth whitening are using LED lights these days rather than UV. But this is, it's a consumer question that you need to ask if you're going for this teeth whitening. So Evan could be right that it could be that. The light that they shine to cure the dental filling material, the white dental filling material that they put in teeth now rather than the mercury amalgam, is usually LED. It's usually a blue light rather than ultraviolet light to cure the dental material, the filling material. Oh, I didn't know that. The things you learn on the Health Report podcast. You should listen more often, Tegan. What are you talking about? I listen every week. Sure. Trudy's written in asking about low FODMAP diet. So she's just been diagnosed with IBS by a gastroenterologist. She's been told to go on a low FODMAP diet, but there seem to be so many companies cashing into this trend, selling low FODMAP food. Is it just a fad diet or is it a valid method of identifying food that may be causing problems? And she's also asking about, um, she heard some time ago that there were breath hydrogen tests for fructose and lactose malabsorption, but they seem to have fallen out of favour. So what's their status today? Well, let's start with the hydrogen breath test. So the hydrogen breath test is still one of the best tests for lactose intolerance, although 
what most experienced doctors will tell you is that the history will tell you whether or not you've got something like lactose intolerance and you can go on a lactose-free diet and if it helps you, then that's fine. But you can actually go to, if you really want to be sure, there are various tests that can be done, but a hydrogen breath test with a lactose challenge is a good way of doing it. And I'm not aware that it's gone out of favour, although you often don't need it if if the story's... Uh, strong. The FODMAP diet, some people swear by it. So what this is, is uh, essentially sugars, carbohydrates that are rapidly fermented. And it's things like lactose, fructans, galactosaccharides, and so on. And that removing them, because they're rapidly fermented, they produce gas and discomfort in the colon. And removing them helps the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. The research has been a bit iffy in this area. It's not. It's it's an awkward diet to be on. It's not a harmful diet. You need patience and perseverance to do it. And there are, you know, there are recipe books that help you. There's a lot of support out there if you want to go on a FODMAP diet, and it helps some people but not others. And the evidence is okay, but it's not brilliant that it that it works. It's not a fad. You know, it's been reasonably researched, and there's got a rationale to it. But there are other things for IBS as well, such as, I mean, that's partly what FODMAP is about, which is knowing what foods you might be reacting to, but they're not necessarily FODMAP foods. Sometimes that you, when you're going through a period of stress, your IBS symptoms can get worse. And sometimes it's just nothing that you can explain at all. And I say this as an IBS sufferer. Mm. Sue's got a question about delayed onset muscle soreness. Uh, Well, she starts by saying she loves the show. It's required listening. Thanks, Sue. And she often hears people say things like, I get sore after I go to the gym or skiing or whatever, so I take a Voltaren. That's the brand they usually mention. And she used to be a physio, but she's not anymore. And her understanding was that this intermittent use of an anti-inflammatory for muscle soreness is not likely to be useful and could even be a bad idea. So... Is that true or is her info out of date? Delayed onset muscle soreness is a real thing. It happens often after the exercise, usually as a reaction to muscle break, you know, muscle fiber breakage, and it's part of muscle growth as well. So your muscles tend to, it tends to be a sign that your muscles are probably in a growth phase after you've had the exercise. There's been a lot of work done on non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, of which Voltaren is one, and delayed onset muscle soreness. One is, does, does it help the muscle soreness? Um, and the other is, there are theoretically, these NSAIDs could actually interfere with muscle growth. And so if you're wanting bigger muscles, and no matter whether you're muscle building or you're going for muscle strengthening and you want to avoid the sarcopenia of old age, the muscle degeneration of old age, you do want to get your muscles to be growing. That's why you're going and doing these exercises. And so the evidence is that NSAIDs probably do not interfere with muscle growth, but they're also probably not very good for delayed onset muscle soreness either. Stretching doesn't really help either for delayed onset muscle soreness have you come across anything in your search for the solution, Tegan? Well, I was looking pretty hard because I'm suffering from delayed onset muscle soreness today. Uh, and I'd sort of seen that there was one study from 2012 that said it looked like the inflammatory reaction might be actually part of the recovery process, which I found really intriguing, right. but I didn't really understand why. Well, I think that's the muscle breakage, that when you're doing serious muscle training, you're breaking microfibers in the muscle, and then you get hypertrophy of the muscle fibers as a response to that muscle. So essentially, you're injuring your muscles in exercise, and the growth comes from a response to that injury. 
So for those of us who are hobbling up and down stairs after doing squats, is it just a question of suck it up? There's nothing that can really interfere with the pain? Look, when, in the days when I could afford a personal trainer and when I've complained about delayed onset muscle soreness, he said, thanks for the compliment. <laughs> Obviously, working you nice and hard. Yeah, that's right. And we've got the last question from Laura, which I'm going to put to you, Tegan. Um, and Laura says, we know sitting for long, prolonged periods of time is bad for us and we should regularly move around and change position. I often subconsciously move around and find myself with my legs crossed at the knees or ankles. I've been told this is bad for my joints, my joint alignment, and will cause varicose veins. But is this actually true? My God, you've got to be anxious now about leg crossing. <laughs> so I know that leg crossing can be bad for people with a hip replacement board, but healthy people. Should we try to avoid crossing our legs at the knee or ankle, or is this just a myth? Put Laura out of her misery, please, Tegan. Laura, I wouldn't be too worried about keeping your legs crossed, but I'd be more interested in getting up and moving around rather than just shifting in your seat. Because, yeah, uh, inactivity can contribute to varicose veins and so can a physical blockage. So if you're going to be sitting with your legs crossed for a really long period of time, then you're putting pressure on those veins. And basically the way the blood moves up your legs out of from your veins up your legs is through the help of your muscles, especially your calf muscle. It acts like a pump. And so if you've got your legs crossed, you're putting pressure on those veins. But in addition to that, your inactivity is also perhaps causing the blood to pull there. So standing up, walking around is a much better way of of getting that movement back and that blood flow back than simply shifting in your seat. But also varicose veins tend to also be genetic. Uh, weak valves can run in family and you can also increase your risk of varicose veins by carrying excess weight. So sitting isn't the only factor involved. So get those muscles squeezing and get into those deep squats, Laura. That's right. And if you've got a question, send us an email. We're healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.